BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So probably five or six years ago, I was walking down the street in New York, and my family was with me. And we stumbled into some sort of film shoot right there in Midtown Manhattan, and we see Ben Stiller up ahead of us. So I asked my kids, do you know who that is? And they actually did recognize him, but take a guess as to what role they remembered him from. Mm, I'm going to say like uh, Night at the Museum. Well, it's a good guess, and they've definitely seen those movies, but actually, Penny Rose immediately started singing, a cheese is a person in your neighborhood. <laughs> Honestly. so And then William joined in, so both she and William recognized him from that ridiculous role, that cameo that he made as the cheese on Sesame Street. Which is incredible, right? <laughs> it really is. And, and, and what's wild is when you stop to think about all the great songs from Sesame Street over the years, and just how my kids and George and I all know every word to these songs. And I know there are millions of others who could sing right along with us. Mm -hmm. There's a song for every emotion in every situation. You know, think about Oscar's I Love Trash or my favorite, the Snuffleupagus. You've got Kermit's It's Not Easy Being Green or one of these things is not like the other one. I mean, the list goes on and on. And of course, I don't want to forget the song with the most ridiculous roster of cameos ever, and that's Put Down the Ducky. I mean, I know this sounds ridiculous, but do you remember the time, like, you and I and some other people tried to name all the cameos of the people who were in this? It's such yeah, a I ridiculous did. list. <laughs> and it felt like we named a ton, and yet I don't even think we got halfway there. Nowhere so I was just close. looking at the list again. There was Gladys Knight, James Taylor, John Candy, Pee Wee Herman, Patti LaBelle, Martina Navratilova. I mean... The list goes on and on, but I think one of my favorite things about it is just how all over the place this list was. I know, and you almost get the feeling like people were flattered to be asked to be in it, right? <laughs> oh, totally. I mean, can you imagine it'd be like the highlight of a career to be part of this song? But it's hard to believe that Sesame Street will turn 50 next year, and there's no telling how many kids have learned something from the show over the years. And, you know, we did that episode about Mr. Rogers a few months back, and both of us just had a blast doing it. So... It seemed time to do the same thing with Sesame Street. So let's dive in.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, putting the finishing touches on his own homemade Muppet. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Now, I, I don't want to hurt any feelings. I, I do have to say it was a noble effort, but it still kind of looks like a mop with a pair of googly eyes slapped on it. I don't know how you feel about it, Mango. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, that's kind of what a Muppet is, right? Like, I, I actually true. remember this old uh, Simpsons gag where Lisa asks what a Muppet is, and Homer says, well, it's not quite a mop, and uh, it's not quite a puppet. So to answer your question, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't alone in not knowing. In, in fact, even Muppet creator Jim Henson wasn't so sure Early in his career, Henson said the word Muppet was this combination of the words marionette and puppet, uh-huh. and that would make a lot of sense. But later interviews found Henson refuting that earlier claim and instead insisting that it was just a fun, made-up word with no deeper meaning. But, you know, the word itself might not mean much, but the Muppets and the worlds they inhabit mean quite a lot to millions of children and adults alike. So, you know, today we're going to celebrate the impact by exploring the Muppets' original stomping grounds, which, of course, is Sesame Street. Now, we'll get a sense for how the Landmark show got its start, as well as what it's like to work behind, or in this case, below the scenes. And along the way, we'll learn a little bit more about the humans and the Muppets who call Sesame Street home. Yeah, but I I almost feel like we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with all this Muppet talk, because the way to Sesame Street wasn't actually paved with felt puppets, but with a posh Manhattan dinner party. And it sounds strange, but in 1966, there was this executive for the Carnegie Foundation whose name is uh, Lloyd Morissette. And Lloyd struck up this conversation with this friend of his, this uh, public television producer named Joan Cooney. And Morissette told her that his daughter loved TV so much that she'd actually memorized all her favorite commercials. Like, she'd memorized the jingles, she woke up early to watch TV, she'd even wake up so early that she'd watch the test patterns before the broadcast started. It's amazing. <laughs> That's a concept that I don't think kids today could even understand at all as like having to wait for something. I mean, uh-huh. that, that's dedication. <laughs> but the story kicked off this lengthy conversation between Morissette and Cooney, and they started talking about how TV could be made both entertaining and educational for young kids. So they wondered if those same flashy techniques that were getting used to make ads for cereal and toys, if those could also be used in educational ways. You know, for things like, uh, I guess, teaching the alphabet or counting numbers or whatever. And and the two kept their conversation going for about three years. And at the heart of this conversation was this one guiding question. Quote, what if educational content went down more like ice cream than spinach, right? So this is what they were asking themselves over and over. And to help answer this, Cooney actually wrote this paper for the Carnegie Foundation in 1967. It was titled, The Potential Uses of TV in Preschool Education. And the paper actually detailed a small amount of research that had been done on the subject up until then. And it also included Cooney's own thoughts from interviews with educators and child psychologists about, I guess, what an educational program for young kids could look like. Huh. So so what kind of stuff did the experts recommend? So I've actually got a quote here. So Cooney wrote, Nearly everyone I met liked the idea of a daily hour-long program. Almost all of them wanted the letters of the alphabet and their sounds, as well as numbers included. So they took this feedback and they coupled it with this warm response from the Carnegie Foundation. And all of this inspired Cooney and Morissette to co-found the Children's Television Workshop. And this was in 1968. Obviously, later this gets renamed the Sesame Workshop. But one thing Cooney's research hadn't helped with was how exactly to convey that traditionally dry material in this exciting way that they were talking about. So she actually turned to this researcher, this children's researcher at University of Michigan named Edward Palmer. 
And it was his insights that helped shape how the show would eventually be structured. So think about things like um, his findings showed that kids loved music. They loved uh, slapstick comedy. They loved watching animals and other children. But they also disliked unkind characters, which was this new finding. And they were also bored stiff by talking adults, which, you know, (laughs) it sounds obvious in hindsight. But in the 1960s, nobody had actually put that much thought into, like, what kids would or wouldn't respond to on TV or much less spelled it all out for them. Yeah, I mean, looking back, Sesame Street really was a pioneer in that regard. And it's pretty clear how those findings would push the producers toward this idea of using puppets. But I actually read that at first, Jim Henson wasn't even keen on the idea of doing television for children at all. Yeah, that's right. So this producer and writer named John Stone actually recommended Henson for the project. He'd he'd worked earlier on this uh, Cinderella adaptation that I guess never made it to air, but... Like you said, Henson wasn't interested, so he'd actually found success already using his puppets on everything from, like, national commercials to The Ed Sullivan Show and even a stint on SNL. I, actually, this is American Masters about Jim Henson that I've watched, I, I'd say, honestly, like a hundred times. And there's a <laughs> bit in it where he and his friends talk about how they learned to write comedy from these old vaudeville and Catskill comedians from shows like Ed Sullivan. And there's this great scene. It's like Rolf where he's boxing and he's boxing this bag and he's getting ready for a fight and he reveals his plans about how he's going to tackle the fight. And he goes, right cross, left cross, right cross, left cross, right cross, left cross. (laughs) And he's just getting worked up, right? And and then uh, the host goes, but Rolf, what if he hits you? And Rolf looks at the camera and goes, Red Cross, Blue Cross? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's such a Catskill joke. But obviously, like, Jim Henson's starting to get better and better at writing for adults and writing comedy. And making the switch to a show aimed strictly at children kind of felt like a step back for him. It's interesting to think about it being that way. You know, I've actually sometimes heard Jim Henson described as the Walt Disney of puppets or, or maybe of public television. And you know, that strong drive to elevate the public perception of their art form is probably another point of overlap. You remember that story about Disney hating the idea of animation being pigeonholed as, you know, just children's entertainment. And of course, that's the big reason why we have something like Fantasia in the first place. And it, it, it kind of sounds like Henson had that same kind of chip on his shoulder. So I I know what you're saying, but that's actually really funny because uh, I love Fantasia and I've read that uh, Disney couldn't stay awake during the screenings of it as much as he wanted to produce it. (laughs) But uh, but you're right. In 1969, shortly after taking the job on Sesame Street, Henson actually told a reporter, what I'm against is people's thinking puppets are exclusively for children. We've directed our work mostly towards adults and historically puppets have often been for adults. It's only fairly recently that puppets have been pushed into strictly children's areas As a theater form, puppetry can do virtually anything. So I'm curious, what changed his mind about all of this? I mean, a lot of it was the pressure and pleading from Cooney and the rest of the team there. And uh, Cooney was eventually able to win him over kind of by pointing out that if Sesame Street became a success, it could be leveraged into like securing funding for other projects. So she actually told him, trust me, Jim, it's just around the corner. You're not going to be stuck in little kitty entertainment. And She actually kept her promise, like, less than a decade after Sesame Street premiered, Henson was actually able to launch his own edgier project, a little something called The Muppet Show. But uh, back to Sesame. So the show actually launched with a preview episode called This Way to Sesame Street, which aired on NBC on Saturday, November 8th at 5 p.m., and this was in 1969. Wait, you said this this was on NBC? I know, it's crazy, right? So the series didn't air on PBS until that following Monday, but the preview on network TV actually helped introduce the idea of the show to parents so they'd know when to tune in for regular episodes. 
And this was actually a smart idea considering all the stuff happening in the world at the time. So this is uh, back in November 1969. So the moon landing had just happened a few months earlier. Nixon was finishing his first year in office and uh, the Zodiac Killer was dominating national headlines. So it's almost easy to imagine the premiere of a kid's show being lost in all the scuffle. But thankfully, like the producers realized what a loss it would have been. And they actually took measures to make sure Sesame Street got a fair shot. And actually, they, they weren't the only ones. Like, the, the end of that premiere episode actually featured an appearance by the U.S. Commissioner of Education. And uh, he told the audience, Sesame Street represents both a historic step forward by the medium of TV and an equally significant innovation in mass education. In plain words, there never has been before a nationwide TV program designed especially to prepare young children for school. Next week, there will be. Yeah, that's wild. And it really wasn't an overstatement. And I hadn't really thought about it before. But, you know, Mr. Rogers was on the air at that point, but his show was never really aimed at preparing kids for school. And it didn't follow any kind of research-based curriculum. You know, you look at something like Sesame Street, where every episode is focused around one piece of curriculum. And Mr. Rogers was obviously grounded more in psychology and emotions and that's not a knock at all against Mr. Rogers. We've said before, we're huge fans, and and both shows are super beneficial in their own right. Absolutely. And, and speaking of iconic, I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the show's more famous aspects. So for starters, there's the name itself. Apparently, the team went through quite a few names before settling on the right one. Some of the early contenders included uh, 123 Avenue B and the incredibly generic Fun Street. <laughs> the first one was actually in the running, but it got taken out because— you know, Alphabet City, there's a real address in New York that's 123 Avenue B. And oh, yeah. producers worried that it would have limited the appeal outside of the city. Well, not to mention, you'd probably get kids making pilgrimages to that address, mm-hmm. trying to find Big Bird or their other favorite characters, and then just being devastated when they find, like, a <laughs> laundromat or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good point. So it, it is lucky for everyone that this woman, Virginia Schoen, was on staff at the time, and she's the one who suggested the word sesame. She'd come across the phrase open sesame, you know, from the Arabian Nights and Sinbad's yeah. tale, and uh, the word kind of struck her as being evocative of these adventures in general, so... The team coupled that with the show's urban setting and obviously came to Sesame Street. The odd part is that they made the decision to, like, change that to the title at the very last minute. And obviously, we're happy they did. Yeah, I'm glad they got that straightened out. But, you know, one of the most iconic parts of the show to me has always been its theme song. Can you tell me how to get to Sesame Street? And it's kind of upbeat and wistful at the same time. And I guess it's really like a lot of the music from the 60s and 70s. But It's also got what is hands down one of the best uses of harmonica I have ever heard. And and, and I'm not joking. It may sound like maybe, okay, maybe it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it was still pretty awesome. (laughs) Top top 10 at least. And it's performed by this jazz and blues legend named Gene Toots Thielmans. You know, he had this great career playing with all the greats, everybody from, I was just looking at the list here, like Miles Davis, Ella Fitzgerald, Charlie Parker. And it's just pretty incredible to see who all he played with. But despite all that success, Toots always had this soft spot for his work on Sesame Street. He was interviewed back in 2008, and he said about it, my playing on the Sesame Street theme has always been an important reward on my lapel. That's awesome. But you know someone who doesn't look back at the song quite so fondly? That's John Stone. He's that same producer we talked about earlier who helped Jim Henson get on board here. But uh, Stone actually co-wrote the theme song with Bruce Hart and this composer, Joe Raposo. He'd wanted the song to capture that sense of running happily, tumbling, playing along the way, but always intent on getting to Sesame Street. Yeah, definitely. 
You know, I mean, that's what I think of when I think of the song. And I think about like those old versions of Barkley romping along and them all running. And, uh, you know, I, I'd say the song was a huge success. But looking back, Stone was actually pretty unhappy with the trio's work or at least the lyrics, which he co-wrote. He's actually gone on record saying that the lyrics are trite and thoughtless, full of happy <laughs> little cliches like the line, sunny day sweeping the clouds away. All right. I mean, maybe that's a little bit cliche, but I feel like that's a little harsh. It's it's not exactly Shakespeare, but I don't feel like it's that bad. I know, uh, but uh, my, my favorite of his criticisms was that some of the references would eventually feel dated. Like, apparently he scoffed at the phrase, everything's A-OK, because he considered it, quote, astronaut slang. Oh, astronaut <laughs> slang. What's he got against astronauts? All right, well, well, <laughs> all right. Well, since we're taking a backstage look at Sesame Street, we should definitely talk about the talented puppeteers who helped bring the show's most colorful stars to life. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the story of how we got to Sesame Street. All right, Mango, so let's take a few minutes to highlight the humble Muppeteer. That, that's the unseen men and women who bring these Muppets to life. 
Yeah, so one thing I hadn't thought about before doing the research this week is just how much of those uh, characters' personalities only exist because of the puppeteers. Like, it isn't just that they control a character's movements. Puppeteers on Sesame Street also provide the voices for all of their characters. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the way that it works in most cases is that you have a puppeteer crouched on the floor, out of shot, of course, and their arms are above their heads to be able to control the limbs and the mouth flaps of, you know, whatever character they're performing. Now, meanwhile, the puppeteer is also speaking all of their lines in character. They're interacting with the adults and the children who are in the scene, and many of those are not even trained actors. So they're having to hit all their choreographed movements. They're having to keep track of where the camera is pointed. I mean, it's an insane amount of work just to bring one of these Muppet characters to life. And then something you don't really think about is that in addition to all of these characters, you've got these puppeteers that have to avoid bumping into each other. I mean, it's it's twice as many as you see on screen there. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a lot of ordered chaos as they're organizing all of this. It is really impressive. And I, I mean, in some cases, it's even more complicated than what you just described. Actually, before we go into that, uh, I I wanted to tell you about uh, this time I was in San Francisco a few years ago, and I was with my kid cousin, and I saw that Brian Henson was doing this, like, adults Muppets show. And so I dragged my cousin along, and it was great. But at the end of it, there was this huge finale, and it was wonderful, where all the Muppets, like, sang in unison, and then they decided to do an encore, and the Muppeteers took the puppets off and did it all again with their bare hands. And uh, Oh, wow. It was really incredible. Like, I, I can't tell you how amazing it was to watch these hands, like, basically communicating all this emotion and singing. I mean, you were just looking at fingers, and it, it was yeah. almost like, uh, I, I know you know this, but like Eddie Izzard in Dress to Kill, like, when, when he does his show in English, and then for an encore, he does the same show in French. I mean, you're almost, like, more amazed by watching him reenact it and, like, how you were laughing at this act that's now in this, like, different language. I mean, that was one of my favorite things to watch. I love that. It really is incredible. But um, back to the puppets. So Gabe basically pulled a veil on this for me. And there are three different kinds of puppets on Sesame Street. So the first two are rod puppets, and these are like uh, Elmo and Kermit, and then arm puppets like uh, Cookie Monster, which work the way you said. So with the rod puppet, the performer has one of their hands inside the character to control its head, and their free hand controls a rod that's attached to the character's arms. And with an arm puppet, it's one hand inside the head and one hand inside the character's arm. So, of course, this works best with puppets that have thicker arms, like uh, Mm -hmm. Cookie Monster or Ernie, but... Then there's also a third kind of puppet, and that's a totally different level. Like, that's the wearable ones where a performer actually has to, like, climb inside a bodysuit. All right, so you're talking about characters like Big Bird or, for instance, one of my favorites, Snuffleupagus. Exactly. So Big Bird's an interesting case because he's actually a hybrid wearable arm puppet. So the performer puts on Big Bird's legs like a pair of pants, and then the body's lowered over him. And one hand goes straight up through the neck to control the head, and the other hand goes into one of Big Bird's wings. And... Believe it or not, it was just one guy, Carol Spinney, who did all of Big Bird's puppeteering and voice work for over 45 years. And today it's one of his uh, former students, this guy named Matt Vogel, who wears the big yellow suit. That is pretty amazing. He did that character for 45 years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a credit to the performers for making those characters seem so real. I mean, so much so that even as an adult now, it does feel a little bit strange to think about real people inside those characters. I know. I I feel that way, too. But why don't we leave the puppeteers for a second and uh, focus on the characters themselves? So to start off, I I do want to read this quote from this fantastic book on Sesame Street history called Street Gang. It's by uh, Michael Davis. But in this part, he's talking about what Henson and his Muppets brought to the show and what made it all work. So Davis writes, quote, 
Considering that most Muppets start out as bath mats with appliques, it's fairly miraculous that they seem to have more dimensionality to their personalities than do most human characters on TV. Henson understood that viewers would suspend their sense of disbelief if they saw pieces of themselves in the characters. So Forgetful Jones had a foible, and he was therefore funny and as recognizable as the elderly neighbor who always seemed surprised when the paperboy came to collect on Fridays. The Count had an obsessive need, and who doesn't? Tully fretted, Oscar kvetched, Ernie teased, Bert was anal, and Grover, like most of us, was if not always a superhero, certainly above average. <laughs> I like that. And I guess they're pretty true to life in a lot of ways, if if not somewhat exaggerated. You know, like one character Davis mentioned there, Telly Monster, he actually reminds me of that girl you mentioned earlier, you know, Morissette's daughter who watched mm-hmm. the test patterns. You, know, you see, Telly was originally supposed to be the television monster, and he debuted in 1979 as this character, and he was a TV junkie, and his eyes would get all swirly whenever he looked at one, you know, like he was being <laughs> hypnotized or something. And so this idea played for a while, but then... The producers started to think about this and they got nervous about what kind of message they were sending to their younger viewers. I mean, that makes sense, right? They were making a TV show and probably wasn't their best move to have a character who gets all zombified like the kids might when they're watching. (laughs) So from then on, Telemonster was just portrayed as this chronic worrier instead, you know, because that's such a big improvement, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, speaking of hypnotism, did you know that Count Von Count had the power to hypnotize people when he first appeared on the show? And uh, this was back in 1972. Apparently, he was a much more menacing vampire back then, uh, (laughs) but he became more and more friendly over time, eventually dropping the whole villain part. You know, I was actually always a little bit unclear on this because I'm, I'm curious, is Count actually a vampire? <laughs> you know, he's, he, he's obviously patterned after Bella Lugosi's take on Dracula, but he does seem pretty preoccupied with numbers for this creature who's supposedly driven by bloodlust. <laughs> So, I mean, the official line is that the Count is not a vampire, but there have also been, like, times when he was referred to as, like, a number-friendly vampire or uh, (laughs) once he was called a numerical vampire. (laughs) But here's the funniest part, right? In some takes on vampire folklore, vampires are actually said to suffer from arithmomania, which is the overwhelming urge to count the things in front of you. Arithmomania? Is that what Mm -hmm. you said? Is Is this a real thing? Apparently it is. And and there are even some old European and even like Chinese folktales where people are advised to ward off an attacking vampire by throwing a bunch of rice, millet, wheat, or red lentils at it. Like, it's a very specific <laughs> list. But uh, the idea is that the vampire would feel so compelled to count up all the grains that I guess you can slip away as they're obsessed with this. Well, I like the idea that it has to be red lentils. Like, don't even try it with the brown ones. It <laughs> definitely has to be red ones. But I do kind of like that the Count is totally aligned with this vampire lore. But, you know, while while we're on the subject of monster puppets, I I do feel like we need to set the record straight about another famous one, and that's Cookie Monster. And yes, that is still his name, because despite what you may have heard, Cookie Monster did not trade in his cookies for fresh fruits and vegetables. And that was a rumor that got started back in 2005. And that's because Sesame Street had featured a new song, and it was called A Cookie is Sometimes Food. And so people quickly assumed that the PC police were tinkering with everything and they decided to change this beloved character and all his defining traits were going to be stripped away. But I mean, here's the thing. The Cookie Moderation song wasn't even sung by Cookie Monster. I don't know if you remember this. It was sung by Hoots the Owl. Oh, really? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, the scene ends with Cookie Monster scarfing down a plate of cookies and declaring, now is sometimes, which I just <laughs> love that idea. And, and But nonetheless, like the, the ugly rumors persisted and, and so much so in 2007, Cookie Monster had to have a sit-down interview and address these rumors head on. So he talked with Matt Lauer, and when asked if he had given up the cookies, the monster said, you members of media blow story way out of proportion. Me still likes cookies. <laughs> I love that. And and really, Cookie Monster is kind of right, right? Like, they, they were blowing it out of proportion. The idea was never that he ate nothing but cookies on Sesame Street. For example, back in 1974, he actually appeared in an ad for the Nutrition Council where he's seen eating meat, vegetables, fruit, milk, and a whistle for dessert, which he claimed would give him strong lungs. A whistle, like a whistle that you blow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so th this was a campaign to get kids to eat fewer cookies and more whistles? I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was a little misguided on that front, but uh, I think their hearts were in the right place. Yeah, they probably were. Actually, by the way, did you know that Cookie Monster used to go by a couple of different names? And this is because the puppet was actually recycled from earlier hints and ventures. And, and this included a commercial for it was for this wheel shaped snack. It was made by General Foods. And mm -hmm. and this blue monster comes along and he's known as the wheel stealer. And then <laughs> you find during a 2004 episode of Sesame Street, Cookie Monster revealed to the world that prior to his cookie eating days, he was simply known as Sid. I know. His mom didn't call him Cookie Monster. He called him Sid. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. But uh, let, let's take a quick break, and then we can talk about some of the finest non-puppet characters to ever visit Sesame Street. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. 
Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Okay, well, so Muppets are great and all, but sometimes you just need a human touch. And uh, thankfully, Sesame Street has had more than its share of celebrity guests over the years, including its first guest. I'd I'd forgotten this was James Earl Jones. uh, And and he read this surprisingly tense reading of the alphabet back in the show's first season. But uh, probably one of the most bizarre appearances ever uh, goes to Ralph Nader. Who I, I didn't realize this, but he appeared on this pledge drive in 1988, and the segment showed this chorus sing the song, The People in Your Neighborhood, and Ralph joined to sing in the line, uh, a consumer advocate is a person in your neighborhood, <laughs> which sounds so shilly. <laughs> I can't even imagine how many kids turned to their parents and were like, what is a consumer advocate? But, but, you know, they need to know that's a pillar of every community right up there with policemen and a firefighter and, of course, the cheese. <laughs> exactly. And uh, apparently Nader actually refused to even sing the song at first because he wanted the lyrics changed from the people that you meet in your neighborhood to the people whom you meet in your neighborhood. Just oh, so it would be more grammatically correct. Isn't that crazy? Oh, I'm sure he was such a pleasure to have on the show. But anyway, for for my money, the pinnacle of celebrity appearances really has to be when C-3PO and R2-D2 landed on Sesame Street back in 1980. Um, I, I believe the song they sang was a protocol droid is a person in your neighborhood, right? <laughs> Makes as much sense as a consumer advocate, I guess, but I'm afraid they didn't say that. Actually, the storyline was that the duo had come to deliver this holographic message to Oscar. And the message was from a distant relative named Lothar the Grouch. (laughs) Now, of course, this super important top secret message in the end was just get lost, which I just really like. That's amazing. Yeah. But the droids actually ended up hanging around for, I think it was a couple of episodes. And and during one of those episodes, things really took a turn for the strange. I don't know if you remember this. (laughs) What, What happened? Well, for one thing, R2-D2 inexplicably falls in love with a fire hydrant. Oh, yeah, a fire hydrant. But, I mean, doesn't that feel like love? Well, like I said, it was a really weird episode. And so here's what happened. 3PO eventually has to break the bad news to his clueless buddy. And he does this by saying, R2, that's a fire hydrant. Firemen come along, attach their hoses to it, turn it on, and water comes out. And then, of course, (laughs) R2 speeds off. He's beeping sullenly to himself. And... 3PO tries to comfort him with this real gem of a line. So he says, oh, R2, don't be sad. You know what they say. It's better to have loved a fire hydrant than to have never loved at all. Oh, man. (laughs) But I mean, I guess that's a lesson that like kids have to learn sooner or later, right? I guess so. But anyway, (laughs) speaking of learning lessons, I do want to make sure we spend some time on the educational impact of Sesame Street because, you know, going back to its original mission statement, The show was always meant to, and here's the quote from it, promote the intellectual and social growth of preschoolers, particularly disadvantaged ones. So with the show coming up on its 50th birthday next year, I kind of wanted to see whether or not it had hit its stated goal. So, I mean, I I obviously love that idea, 
But how can you even measure something like that? I mean, like, measuring how media affects intelligence or social qualities like tolerance doesn't seem like it would be super easy or straightforward. Well, it definitely isn't, but but that hasn't stopped a ton of folks from trying. I mean, if you think about it, Joan Cooney was conducting research on Sesame Street before the show even aired. Mm -hmm. And since her initial paper, there have been more than a thousand studies that were trying to find out about the show's efficacy. So what's the verdict? Well, according to Sesame Workshop, preschoolers who watch Sesame Street do significantly better on a whole range of cognitive outcomes than those who don't. And most of the research I've read really does bear that out. For example, the National Bureau of Economic Research put out a study a few years ago, and they were focusing on the very first generation of kids to grow up with the show. So this would have been back in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, the researchers found that kids who had access to the show performed better in elementary school than those who lived in areas where it wasn't broadcast. And the preschoolers who were able to watch were more likely to start school on time and progress through grade levels at what was considered to be the appropriate speed. And then best of all, children who were raised in economically disadvantaged situations, they seemed to be the ones who got the biggest boost from the show. And this was a ton of kids we're talking about because, you know, when Sesame Street first debuted, it actually had a wider reach than formal preschool services. In fact, only 19% of four-year-olds in 1970 attended preschool, but by 1970, as many as 36% of preschool-aged children in the U.S. were watching Sesame Street. So these findings were telling enough that the Bureau ultimately concluded that Sesame Street was the largest and least costly early childhood intervention that's ever been implemented. Wow. You know, so while an early childhood education program like Head Start costs, I want to say it's something like $8,000 per child per year, the annual cost of Sesame Street today is about five bucks. I mean, that's incredible. But I mean, I, I know Sesame Street is now on HBO. Do you want to talk about how that change has affected the show and perhaps the disadvantaged kids the show once was supposed to help? Right. So you're talking about the deal that Sesame Workshop made with HBO. I think this was back in 2015, and it basically secured financing for the show through its 50th season. So that was definitely a shocking turn of events. But it's worth remembering that the deal only grants HBO first run rights. So, you know, it's, it's something like nine months after each episode's HBO premiere. The show airs on PBS as they always have. So basically new episodes are still free for everybody as long as you're willing to wait a season to get them. Which is obviously better than nothing. But to be clear, I do love HBO. But why the show moved to premium cable? It actually seems like out of character for what has to be like the poster child for uh, public broadcasting. Well, it was really one of those do or die decisions that that pretty much had to be made to keep the show afloat. There was a New York Times article in 2015 that they did a pretty good job of explaining the situation. And so here's how they put it. Historically, less than 10 percent of the funding for Sesame Street episodes came from PBS with the rest financed through licensing revenue, such as DVD sales. Sesame's business has struggled in recent years because of the rapid rise of streaming and on-demand viewing and the sharp decline in licensing income. About two-thirds of children now watch Sesame Street on demand and do not tune into PBS to watch the show. I mean, that that is interesting. And I, I guess when PBS wasn't able to cover the difference, the producers had to look elsewhere for funding. But I guess the show has always depended on uh, wealthier benefactors to help finance the show for everybody else. I, I mean, you think about like viewer donations or merchandise sales, but I mean, to me, the HBO deal feels like an even bigger step in that direction. Like, it's harder to say the show is made particularly to help disadvantaged preschoolers when it airs on HBO first. 
I mean, I get that. But if you think about it, I'm not sure preschoolers would really share that sense of being slighted. You know, as adults, we can pick apart the implications of deals like this and, you know, point out all the ironies, the potential drawbacks. But in the end, a new generation of kids get these new episodes of Sesame Street to watch. And from where I'm sitting, that seems like a clear win for everybody. No, it definitely is. And now we just need to start a petition to get Tristan's Muppet added to the show, you know, for the kids. Yeah, I, I don't know how much luck we'll have with that, but we'll we'll give it a shot. I do think we need to keep one thing in mind. I don't think he even used the clean mop when he made this, but <laughs> anyway, why, why don't we just rechannel that energy into the fact off? You know, one of the things I love about Sesame Street is how they translate their characters in other countries. And did you know that in Nigeria, they refer to Cookie Monster as Zobi the Yam Monster? No. <laughs> of course, Nigerian kids, I, I guess, don't eat cookies the way Americans do. So the showrunners wanted to make sure the show was promoting a staple crop that everybody could eat. So Zobi's catchphrase is, me eat yam. <laughs> I, I mean, if you're talking about how characters translate, I've got to mention Oscar the Grouch, because I, I love that grouchy people are just so universal that <laughs> every country's got one. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so Pakistan has a guy named Akhtar. Uh, he lives in an oil barrel. In Turkey, huh. he goes by Kerpik, and for some reason, he lives in a basket. And in Israel, I, I think we might have mentioned this before, but they've outsourced the job to Oscar's cousin named Moshi Ufnik. And uh, <laughs> apparently Moshi's got his own style because he lives in an old car instead of a trash can. And according to Metal Floss, he's also an observant Jew. He, uh, he celebrates Rosh Hashanah by dipping apples into sardine grease for an extra slimy New Year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, here's a character I wish we had that comes from the Dutch Sesame Street. It's a daredevil chicken named Stuntkip. Now, Stuntkip <laughs> is a relatively new bird, but apparently in every episode, she does something super daring while a frightened rabbit interviews her about the feat. But you've got to listen to these death-defying tricks. So Stuntkip has gone on an escalator by herself, used the bathroom without flushing herself down the toilet, <laughs> checked her under a bed for monsters, introduced herself to new kids at the playground, and perhaps, bravest of all, she told her aunt that she didn't want seconds of Brussels sprouts after eating all of her Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I already love Stunt Kip. But uh, so, you know, Jim Henson is one of my heroes. And I always think of Jim Henson as like kind of a quiet and sweet fellow. But you can actually forget that he could be a little showy, too. In college, he started this puppet show called Salmon Friends that aired on TV. And he made some money off it. So he used that money to buy a Rolls Royce just so he could drive himself to his college graduation in it. That, that is great? hilarious. <laughs> There's so many things about Jim Henson's early life that do feel like almost in contrast to the rest of his life. But I uh -huh. kind of love that fact. <laughs> it's great. All right. Well, here's a cool one. Did you know that years before she made cameos on Sesame Street and introduced their videos, of course, Whoopi Goldberg used to work as a babysitter on the show. So she'd watch over the kids while they were waiting to be called on to set. Oh, that's amazing. I had no idea. So there actually aren't a lot of shows that have been taken out of circulation, but had you heard about the Sesame Street where Oscar the Grouch falls in love with the Wicked Witch of the West? No, that's worse than a fire hydrant. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, apparently they reprised the character from The Wizard of Oz, and he fell in love with her because of her green face and, I guess, horrible disposition. <laughs> but <laughs> but parents reacted really strongly to the episode. I mean, in test audiences, kids were captivated by her face color and actually tuned in really closely. But uh, <laughs> parents mostly wrote in that there were a lot of tears and fears about having to watch a witch on TV. So they pulled the episode from rotation. And also, Sesame Street got a letter from at least one Wiccan about perpetuating negative stereotypes about witches. Well, and it turns out that isn't the only show that got stuck in the cycle. Apparently, there's one about Snuffy's parents getting divorced that never saw the light of day because it was confusing for kids. And I know, of course, one of the things I I appreciate about Sesame Street is how they try to tackle some of these really tough topics. But in this episode, they got really sad because they thought maybe Snuffy's dad had run away. And it did get revisited a few times later on the show but not so head-on as it did in that episode. And there's a Kermit the Frog news segment where he interviews a bird whose parents live in separate trees. And then, of course, there's the character Abby Cadabby and and, and her parents have, have separated. So they talk about that, but it's not quite the same as, as the way they had originally done in the Snuffy episode. Well, uh, on a slightly happier note, did, did you realize that Elmo's the only Sesame Street character who's testified in front of Congress? So, <laughs> I didn't. Elmo claimed he was nervous at the time, and he uh, he testified about music education, I guess. And this is some of the transcript, which Elmo, I guess, did in Elmo's voice. <laughs> Elmo learned all kinds of things about music, like anyone can make music. The whole world is full of music. Music helped Elmo learn the alphabet. If it wasn't for the ABC song, Elmo would be lost, people. Wow, that's pretty great. All right, well, here's one I think is fascinating. Child psychologists thought it would be too confusing for people if kids watched humans and Muppets interacting. So they split up the scenes. It was all humans and then segments with Bert and Ernie, the only two characters on the show at that point. But in test, kids basically ignored the adults and turned away, and then they tuned in for the Muppets. And there's a rumor that at one point the producers thought about cutting all the adults and just making a show about Bert and Ernie, which I'm sure would have been amusing in itself. But when they saw how well Bert and Ernie did on the screen, the writers decided to create more characters to build the show around. And of course, that's how we got Big Bird, Oscar the Grouch, Snuffleupagus, and all the others. Even though I know so much about Jim Henson, I'd never heard that fact before. I really love that (laughs) song. I'm going to give you the trophy this week. Oh, wow. It's such an honor. Well, there were so many facts that we wanted to include in this episode and even some other great ones that we weren't able to include. So maybe we'll have to do another Sesame Street episode sometime. But for any of you that know of some great facts that we might not have included today, we'd love to hear those from you. You can email us parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. And you can always reach us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. So, Will, Will, I I am curious, did you ever feel akin to any Muppets? Like, did you feel any sort of closeness to any of them? (laughs) I mean, I loved certain characters, but I don't think it was because I felt that I was like them. But for some reason, honestly, like I was saying, Snuffy was always one of my favorites. And I don't know why. I just found him so fascinating and just amusing. How about you? I loved Fozzie Bear because he just told bad jokes all the time, you know? And and I, I just found his character so fun. And I used to get so annoyed that everyone would tell me I was like Kermit. You know, like oh, I didn't really? want I didn't want nice to be my defining character. No, <laughs> you don't want that. You don't want that. <laughs> Thanks.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Kristen McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.